0: All right, good morning, and let's all turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 15. That's where we're going this morning, <clears throat> and before I uh, get into this, the text this morning, just want to say that uh, if you have a special music or somebody, I know there's some hidden talent here, right? Uh, if you ever want to sing a song or something like that, please come see me. We're trying to get more people involved, and as you know, we've had some special music with the children, and we want to make that not... I should say, not special. We want it regular, okay? (laughs) So not that it isn't special, that's for sure. But we want to see that more as well and enjoy those hymns. Most of those hymns, I think, aren't in our regular hymn book. So we were able to put those in there as well this morning and glad that we could do that. And we're looking at Mark chapter 15. And that text should be up behind me here. And let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? So uh, see how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested, and there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who is called the king of the Jews? And so they cried out again, Crucify him! And then Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Let's pray. Our Lord, again, we are so thankful this morning that we can come to this Bible text here in the Gospel of Mark. Lord, we're thankful that we're able to open up your word uh, we're able to understand it, but more than anything, we're thankful for the message you give us, the person of Jesus Christ, as he's presented here in scripture. We pray this morning that we would not be like these people mentioned here who rejected the king, but rather people that received the king. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. As we journey through the gospel of Mark, it's been quite a journey. It's been a couple of years now we've been in this book on Sunday mornings, and um, as we've been going through this, we see, as Scripture presents, the life of Christ, uh, As according to Mark's gospel anyways. Uh, this is one of the four gospel writers. Remember, Mark writes dealing primarily with the service of Jesus, his public ministry. It actually begins with the baptism of Christ at the banks of the Jordan, and that's how Mark's gospel opens up. The presentation of the King, the presentation of the Messiah. It's very interesting because we come to this text here in chapter 15, and we see where (coughs) those who are the religious rulers of the day out and out reject the one who is the king, the one who is Messiah. Uh, I find that interesting because, in the very beginning, when Jesus was baptized, you remember, he is baptized by a man named John. John the Baptist is, is his title. But he was the baptizer, one who was preaching of the kingdom of God and preaching repentance, remember? And he's there at the banks of the Jordan. Actually, at the very place, according to, I think it's John's gospel, it says he's at Bethabara. And that means the house of the crossing. The very spot in which Jesus was going to be baptized, uh, actually uh, 2,000 years before that time, Joshua had come across and, or 1,500 years before, Joshua had come across and had crossed into the land it was the very historical place that uh, the jews had entered into their land and it was there that joshua was uh, glorified in that he was uh, given the charge over israel and god used him and brought about these miracles and it wasn't only through joshua obviously but used him as a great leader it was later that jesus would be confirmed as a great leader also but it would be three years later when he would stand before the religious rulers Oh, by the way, a kind of a trivial thing, is John the Baptist was of the tribe of Levi, all right? That was the priestly tribe. His father, Zechariah, was a priest. And it's interesting that when Jesus comes along, you would think part of the order of the priests was that they were to anoint all new prophets. They were also to anoint and consecrate all new kings. And you have Jesus at his baptism. And you know what? The chief priest was not there. Instead, God raised up another man of the priestly order who was not even dressed like a priest, a man named uh, John, who was, as the Bible describes him, a man who was dressed in leather, uh, as in camel's skin leather, and he had his diet was locusts and wild honey, and he was a man of the wilderness. But yet he was of the priestly order. And uh, some have said that John the Baptist was really the legitimate high priest of Israel. Uh, god went right around the religious system and picked his own man is what he did and that's how jesus's ministry on earth starts in his public ministry anyways and then we come three years later when he's standing before, now the religious council, not only them, but the Romans as well, and the people. And there he is being challenged, and, and really you don't find Jesus opening his mouth very much at all. That is in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, where it says, As a sheep is dumb, as unable, unable to speak before her shearers, so he opened not his mouth. And he goes before them and is presented as their king. And the sad reaction here as it's recorded is that he's rejected also. Sometimes we come to scripture and i we, it's interesting that we were talking similar about this same topic in Sunday school in the book of Judges. We were actually looking there uh, at, at a similar topic this morning of a priestly order and all this different things. And as this comes up, I don't always pick the schedule, okay? It just kind of fell that way, and it kind of leads into this morning's message. So if you were here in Sunday school, uh, you know that we were talking about some of this stuff already. But nevertheless, I'll stick to this text. One of the things uh, that the Bible reveals for us (coughs) is that, number one, we are indeed um, somebody, our own, how would I put it, our own nature is such that we are against God right from the beginning. The book of Romans, and in chapter 8, verse 7, it says this, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Now, that's an interesting statement the Apostle Paul makes, and we see that in Mark's gospel as we looked at that, where what you find here is is people that outwardly they looked right. They dressed right. Outwardly, They were doing things that people couldn't trip them up on. But inside, as Jesus tells earlier in Matthew's Gospel, he says they were full of dead man's bones. (laughs) They were like whited sepulchers, whited graves full of dead man's bones. The inside hadn't changed. You know what? The inside hasn't changed. If you don't have a new nature, if you have not been born again by uh, the, the Spirit of God and come to faith in Christ in that, you know what? Your mind, the Bible describes it as the carnal mind. It always does that which is uh, looking out for number one, the self. It hasn't even got aware that much. And you know what? It says it's against God. enmity with God. And that's our natural condition. And you can try to clean up the outside, but the inside is still rotten. And that's exactly what we see with the religious leaders of Christ's day. The people who should have known better. The people who had the word of God. The people who had seen and been handed on the traditions. All those different things. They had rejected those things at their heart level. And they would indeed reject the only one that could save them as well. And the Bible says, For it is not subject to the law of God. One of the things that the person who is is not a believer, the one who has not trusted Christ, has not come to faith in Christ, you know what? They aren't subject in the mind to the law of God. They, They may indeed find themselves subject to the law, right? But in their heart, they disobey. In their heart, they don't want to be there. It's the old adage of, remember, you tell your kid to sit down, and they don't want to sit down, so you make them sit down. And they look at you and say, but in my heart, I'm standing up, right? And that's the way we are in our natural state as sinners. We're born that way, and it is our heart's direction. It's away from God, not towards God. Well, that's some of that. When you come to Matthew or Mark's gospel here, what you have is a picture of... uh, this going on in the rejection of the king and i before i beat up too much on them i have to say I, too often i i find myself looking in the word of god and beholding my own face and one of the things of, of having to go through a book of scripture like the gospel of mark and i try to as much as we can go kind of book by book verse by verse and as we go through that you hit these issues that they aren't hobby horses for me. They're just things that we're coming across. And I look at them, but often they have to hit me first as I'm studying through this. And sometimes I don't like what I see. It's like the missionary who was in Africa years ago, and he had a mission station there. And it was kind of remote. And one of the day a tribal man showed up. He was a tribal elder, a chief. He was all decked out in his Uh, his war paint and everything else and he came and he showed up at the missionary station and just outside the the missionary hut there was a, a mirror hanging on a tree and the missionary had put it there so that he could go out in the morning and kind of wash up and use his mirror and the tribal man having not been familiar with mirrors he went over to look at it and he looked in it and he was taken back and he stepped back. And he immediately went over to the missionary and he, he said to him, he says, I want to buy that from you. Well, the man said, it's, it's not for sale. It's my mirror and you can't have it. And he said, no, I need to buy that from you. I have to. And the man, th- this elder, he continued and he just pestered until eventually the missionary said, okay, I'll sell it to you. And the transaction took place and the man, the tribal guy, went over and he grabbed the mirror and he threw it on the ground. He broke it. And the missionary was kind of horrified. There's this good mirror and now it's nobody's mirror. And he says, why did you do that? He said, because I went over there and I looked inside the tree and I saw that face looking back at me. and I never want to see that again. <laughs> well, isn't that the way the word of God is, isn't it? The Bible says in the book of James, it is like a natural man looking in, in a mirror, beholding his, his natural face, right? You look in the word of God and you see really who you are. The mirror doesn't lie. I wish it did. Now, you can buy those distorted ones, right? That make you look thinner. I think they sell those now. As, as we get fatter in our society, the mirrors make you look thinner for some reason. But that's not the real reality, isn't it? When you look in a mirror, you find out that it really reflects who you are and hopefully it addresses those things so that well, before we come to church, you know we, we shave and we, we comb our hair those that have it and those kind of things and you, you put on your tie straight right you know, whatever it is. We do that because the mirror tells us that. Well, the Word of God is the very same way. It tells us what we really are. And it even tells us what we are in the dark. The sad thing here is that as Jesus is brought before his uh, accusers, and remember in the previous chapter, he's been through these trials, and now it's it says in the morning. The phrase in the Greek means in the dawning of the morning. The sun is just about to come up. And now that which has been committed in the dark and man likes to do sin in the dark, uh, is now going to be revealed. And it has to be, you see, part of the prophecies of God, but also because the things they did in secret were not legal. They were not to hold secret trials in the middle of the night. So now they had to kind of do this officially, the right way, and they go and they bring Jesus before Pilate. And there they're going to have that. And by the way, the Jews had lost, just the year before this, they had lost the uh, right as Jews and their, their religious leaders the right to enact capital punishment which was death and that's what they wanted for Jesus because they really wanted him off the scene but they were accusing him of blasphemy because he made himself equal with God and that would have been indeed blasphemy if he wasn't indeed God the son he was God and you find the deity of Christ is also on display throughout this whole thing but they had rejected him and it's interesting because there's a prophecy in Genesis chapter 49 that uh, talks about the scepter of Judah having will not depart until Shiloh is come. The word Shiloh there is re- referenced to the Messiah. The Jews believe that, they wrote that in their own Talmud. And when Jesus comes just the year before the scepter of Judah, which is the power of Judah that the, the tri- they had left, they were no longer. And the Jews themselves associated that when the Romans told them they, should not, they could no longer enact capital punishment. And they quoted that verse when that took place, a prophecy. By the way, they also attached that Shiloh had not yet come. And that was the greater travesty. And that's written in their own commentaries previous to that. I find that interesting because Shiloh was among them. Messiah was there. The king was there. And nobody really knew it or recognized it. The ones that should have known better in those things. I'm just going to want to freeze you out here. If you get too cold in the front row, well, I can't do anything about it. I, you know, There's hot air in the middle and there's cold air on the sides. There we go. There we go. <laughs> we'll do that. But uh, you find that this goes on. Let me look at this. The first rejection that takes place, there's three of them in this text that we read, was the rejection by the priests, the rejection by those who knew better. It says, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. There is this mockery, and I don't think they needed to bind Jesus. He wasn't going to fight back. He had that opportunity, didn't he? When he was there in the garden and they came and they could have arrested him. By the way he could have called down legions of angels and destroyed them. John's gospel says when he said I am they fell back. You know the other gospel writers don't record that in the in the account of the garden incident. Jesus you can't bind Jesus but yet willingly he goes bound and he's brought next before the Gentiles before Pilate the Roman pontiff in that way. Well you, you have him going there and, and doing that. We know from Luke's gospel, and I won't turn there, but chapter 22, you find that this trial that had occurred, occurred at night. And under the law of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, the trials had to be conducted in a certain way, and uh, it had not been conducted correctly. Again, showing that sometimes man pushes things through, And we do things despite what we already know, right? In doing that. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it says, They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is a king, is Christ a king. That's what it says. In their accusation, their problem, the hang-up the priests had here, was that Jesus was making claims that they didn't think were right. It's interesting we don't see him making that other than when Pilate asked him, "Are you king of the Jews?" He answered and said to him, "It is as you say, or you have said it." <laughs> uh, he answers Pilate, but he really doesn't say much more than that on those things. It's quite sad because the religion of at this time of the Jews had degenerated to a point where a system that had pointed to Messiah appointed to a one who would come and save his people from their sins, uh, had now degenerated to a place where the word of God, although it had been taught and memorized and learned and sung and all those things, it was it was being heralded in a vacuum. People weren't accepting it here in their heart. It had become cold and dead. And as we've gone through the book of Mark, we've come across these guys many times, haven't we? In every instance, we find that they had opportunity to know better and repent and they didn't instead they were about their own agenda religion has a tendency to do that and i'm using that word religion carefully i know some say well religion is is uh is a good word isn't it if you're religious you're a better person well if your religion is centered on a person the person of jesus christ yes the actions that follow out of that relationship with christ will indeed make you better and will make those around you better all right Uh, it's interesting how that all plays out. But if it's just changing the outside, putting on a suit and a tie and everything else, and you say, well, I've now cleaned it up, and the inside is not there, it will breed a a secrecy. It will breed the atmosphere of nothing more than a social club. You get together, maybe, and we protect our virtues of the social club instead of having it all about Christ, right? And, And much of the world is filled with various religions non-Christian religions as well, that are uh, about those things, and they don't change the inside. That's the difference with Christ. When you come to faith in Him, one of the things He does is He gives you, not only does He forgive you of your sins, but He breathes life into us, and we become God-aware in the sense that we now have a a, a relationship with Jesus Christ that begins now and goes to eternity. I love that. I love that. It goes right through forever. And a lot of times, religious systems don't really have room for that kind of thing. Jesus upsets the apple cart, doesn't he, when it comes to that. I think of an illustration. The British journalist David Price Jones went to a cathedral in England. He had two foreign guests with him, and he walked in, And it was during the evening service at one of these cathedrals. He walked in, and the vicar who was there immediately uh, kind of rebuked him for walking in and disturbing the church service. The only thing is that there were no people present. Only the vicar was present. He was conducting a church service, and it was literally in a vacuum. Nobody was listening. (laughs) Nobody was there. And David Price Jones, you know, he used that as an illustration of how sometimes religious religion can go to a point where we don't even realize nobody's listening. <laughs> no, Nothing's different. Everything just functions as it always has functioned. And yet, it's not alive anymore. And he was using that as sort of an illustration with that. And be careful. Because that's what it can lead to. The Bible is clear that no one is saved by religious works. And I will show you a few verses. Many of them you know already. But in Ephesians chapter 2, right? And in verse 8 and 9, you have that uh, where it says, and it's going to come up here in a moment. I hadn't previously typed it in, but where it says, you are saved by grace, right? That's what it says. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And I just retyped it, excuse me. I'm using this new software, so I got to, sometimes go ahead with that and it says lest anyone should boast it is not the it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast and one of the things that salvation or a system of salvation by works does is it causes us to boast in our own salvation like I can save myself because I'm a better person than that person all right we begin to compare ourselves against each other and you know what you'll always find somebody probably worse than you. (laughs) Yet, when we get in the face of God and and in his light and in his word and we see Christ as who he really is, we realize that every single one of us is undone. Our sin is before us. And though we all can say we're sinners, you know what? I'm as sinful as I, I, I ever could be when I'm in the presence of Christ. I realize that and I need a savior. The Apostle Paul could later write, he said he was the chiefest of sinners I often think of that. I think he had the right perspective on his life. He knew, even though he was one who uh, had persecuted the church, had done those things, he had found forgiveness in Christ. He later could say, "I was the chief, or I am the chief of sinners." And I think all of us could echo that. We're not a whole lot different than those religious leaders, those Pharisees. Uh, they wanted to do that. Salvation is based upon Christ and Christ alone. It really could be summed up with. The aspect of uh, of the gospel, and I try to always get that in every Sunday morning, you know, every service if I can, to tell you the simple gospel message. I trust many of you have accepted Christ as your Savior, but you know what? He came to die for our sins. That's what the cross is about, isn't it? He went there to a cross. When we look at our text, he's being tried, he's being presented before man. Man thinks he's in control. Really, God was in control because God had already come up with a plan for our salvation and it required that God himself would come down. He'd put on flesh. He'd walk among us and as the Bible says, we'd behold his glory even as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that one Jesus Christ would go and he would go to a cross. And there... The righteous, the perfect, the sinless, the holy one would die. And he would take on the sins of the world in death. And he would pay for the sins of the world. And you know what? He became my sacrifice. He came, became my substitute. And by faith, I can receive forgiveness of my sin and get the glories of heaven and be obedient to Christ forever. I can do that by faith if you'll trust him, and if, you, if I'll trust him. That's the simple gospel message. And by the way, Jesus died on a cross, he was buried, third day he rose again. Victorious over sin and death. Had, had death held him in the grave, we'd have no savior. Had death held him in the grave, those that were accusing him in Mark 15 would have been right to say he's not the king, he's not the one who is the righteous judge. But he is the victor, and he is coming again, And everybody will look on him and know who he is at that point. Those that are there. We live in a world today where we have tried to do away with the Lord in anything. You know, as far as religion. We live in a world of convenience in many ways. And it's done that as well. And conveniently, people don't like a Christ that is confrontational. A Christ that convicts us of our sins. In 1936... Arthur Gooderman wrote this, the following poem: He said, First, dentistry was painless, then bicycles were chainless, and carriages were horseless, and may law and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless. Telegraphy was wireless. Cigars were nicotineless, and coffee caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, and putting green uh, excuse me, putting greens were weedless. The college boys hatless, the proper diet fatless, new motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, and our new religions godless. And that's under the umbrella of convenience. We have kind of let God go out of our thinking, our worldview. By the way, he doesn't move. Somebody said, We kicked God out of school, we kicked him out of our country, we've kicked him out of our politics. We you don't kick God out anywhere. <laughs> You you might think you are. They thought they had Jesus bound. We took care of him, but they didn't. Death could not hold him, even the chains of death. Well, he was rejected by the religious leaders of his day, but he was also rejected by Pilate himself. Pilate was the governor in that, kind of the ruler there by proxy for Caesar in the in Judea and he was the civil authority he was the man that was in charge he was the man that knew that uh, the jews had to come to him to release anybody and you know as far as enab- enacting capital punishment and all those things and Pilate really wasn't too concerned about what was going on although he was bothered he was bothered by the fact that here's a man that really had done nothing wrong according to Roman law and yet the Jews were very upset with him the the religious Jews were very upset with him and they wanted him dead and now it was dependent upon Pilate to come up with that decision of what he was to do it's interesting because Pilate asks a question he says are you king of the Jews that's an important question see if Jesus wasn't king of the jews and it wasn't reference to an earthly king here his kingdom is not of this earth you know if the answer was no then this man was a hoax he was nothing more than a a fraud but if he indeed was king of the jews then he ought to be listened to his message ought to be heralded and you know jesus doesn't try to prove anything because he had already proven that hadn't he Remember, Jesus was here on earth. As we've looked through the Gospel of Mark time and time again, as Jesus was, moving, was going along, he did and performed great miracles that took place. Those miracles validated his message, proving that not only was he, you know, who he said he was, but he was indeed by substance the one who could not only forgive sins, but he also had the control over the, the elements. Remember uh, where uh, Jesus is, how about Mark chapter 4? when they're crossing over on the Sea of Galilee and the waves and the storm is beating into the boat and they think they're going to perish. And Jesus stands up and he says, Peace be still. And the waves are still. There's a great storm and there's a great calm. And the disciples marveled at this one who had power over the very elements of the world, the the meteorological cycle that's going on. He was proving indeed that he was God. He didn't do it just there with them. But he did it in public ministry with thousands of people. The feeding of the 5,000. How about in the times where the crowd pressed on him and he heals a woman who had the infirmity of blood, right? The disease there. How about the blind, seeing, the deaf, hearing, all those things. They're all part of the prophecies that the religious Jews knew from the prophets written centuries before that Messiah would be one who would come. Not only would he be king, but he would be someone who would do that. Jesus met the criteria perfectly in the, I don't think Pilate would have been aware of all those things, but Pilate was a shrewd man. Pilate was aware of the customs of the Jews. He was aware that at Passover, typically, they would release a criminal. And they would do so more than as a pardon, showing that Rome was even gracious, and as much as Rome could be gracious. And they would allow that. And so we come up with this idea of, of having Barabbas, who was a criminal, uh, a rebellion. Who had led a rebellion? He was somebody that was an enemy of the state, and you know what? He was due to be killed as well. And it was a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. And the we'll get to that because Pilate chooses Barabbas. The crowd chooses Barabbas over Jesus. In that, we don't know a lot about Pontius Pilate. We do know a little bit from history. We know a little bit from Josephus, first century historian, and we do know that. Uh, he was governor of Palestine and that was the name after that was given to that region after 70 AD but Judea was the biblical name uh, from about AD 26 to AD 36 so right in the middle of that is when the crucifixion took place so about 10 years that he was governor Um, we find that Pilate according to Josephus (coughs) excuse me Pilate was responsible for much of the turmoil that marked his career as the governor of uh, Palestine. So in that sec- that time, it was tumultuous. There was a lot of things that happened. On one occasion, he permitted his soldiers to enter Jerusalem with flags bearing the image of Caesar. And that's interesting because the Jews did not... Um, well, the ten, one of the Ten Commandments is to have no graven images, and they did not want images. And so Rome... Even you know, knowing that they kept the Temple Mount area free of the images of Caesar, but Pilate actually had allowed his soldiers to go in burying the image of Caesar. That stirred up the Jews a lot. Uh, we learned about that a little bit before. Remember when Jesus uh, overturned the money tables in the temple? The, the the money was being exchanged for basically taking Roman coinage, which had an image of Caesar, and it was being changed over into coins that the jews operated in the temple that had no image and rome let them do that the only thing is the money exchangers were making a lot of money in the process and jesus says you've turned my father's house from a house of prayer into a den of thieves right all that was going on under the guise of organized religion and certainly Pilate had done some of that as well had a, a caused, caused more problems Uh, And there's a lot more that could be said about them. By the way, uh, tradition says of Pilate that he was deposed as governor in AD 36. He was exiled to a Roman colony in northern Europe and he eventually committed suicide. Just a few years after Christ stood before him and he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? I think as Pilate would later wash his hands and say, his blood is on you, (laughs) And he washed his hands of that. He never dealt with the person of Christ. He could have found reconciliation. He could have found hope. He could have found forgiveness of his sins. But There's no evidence he ever did. And he went out and he killed himself, most likely. That's according to tradition of the time in that. Let's go on. Verse 3 says, He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And as I said, that was uh, prophecy fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. You can check that out sometime because it says there, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And that's in reference to the coming Messiah that would come. And Jesus met that criteria as well. He would be later, Pilate did not want to deal with this problem in front of him. That's the way he looked at it. So he has Jesus sent to Herod because he's fr- he finds out That Jesus is a Galilean or from that part of Nazareth and that was in the territory of Herod who was kind of a a puppet governor king and it would have been Herod Agrippa and he was uh, the grandson of King Herod and uh, the son of King Herod excuse me. And he would have, uh, from the Herodian family, and he was in charge of that area. So they send Jesus over to Herod, and no one really wanted to deal with him. I can just say this, you better deal with Jesus while he's before you, because if you don't, there might not be another opportunity. You can read of that in John chapter 18, and in there, it's interesting, the statement in John eighteen thirty-seven, 37, Pilate says, what is truth? He asked the question, what is truth? Truth is Jesus, (laughs) is is who he is. He's wrapped up in that. All truth is found in him uh, with that. Well, Pilate rejects him. It says, then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, and that was something that was a tradition, it was a custom, and you find him thinking, maybe I'll get out of this. Surely they won't choose Barabbas. I mean, why would you choose that guy? He's a a real rough character, and you have Jesus. He had really nothing wrong. There's nothing they could find that was uh, worthy of death, not uh, as far as for the civil authorities. They couldn't do that. And you find the question goes from Pilate, and it's put on the people. So you have a king, he's been rejected by his priests. Now he's been rejected by Pilate. And lastly, he's going to be rejected by the people that were there. Some of those same people, a week before, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, remember riding on a donkey? And he comes down into Jerusalem, they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. In other words, God save us, God save us. And they were crying out, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And they were identifying with him. Then the week later, as some commentaries put it, that same crowd would be hollering, crucify him, crucify him. Or they might be before that, Barabbas, Barabbas. Who were they going to release to him? We find out Barabbas is one, he was a prisoner, he was already in custody. And that's what it says, who was chained with his fellow rebels Uh, He was one, and the word that is used there for rebellion, one who brings insurrection. He had been accused of an uprising that was, at least by the civil authority, something that would destabilize the government. So he had been accused of murder, insurrection, and uh, most likely treason. And it was worthy of death in that day under Rome. And so that's what he was sitting on death row in that. You go on. And you find out then it says the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you king of, the king of the Jews? For he knew the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. So here's Pilate, he knows why they're doing this. They know that, well, Jesus is there and he's upsetting their world. Some of them had made a lot of money on the whole religious thing. And some of them had a very opulent living. I mentioned that in Sunday school this morning. Archaeologists have uncovered the, um, the courtyard and the foundation works of uh, Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem. He was the high priest in Jesus' time. And it was very opulent for standards of that first century. And he had uh, mosaics in the floor and all the different things that were there. Beautiful patterns that were in the flooring that stuff was reserved just for the wealthy and the elite of the day and the high priest was obviously a very wealthy man of that day and here comes jesus this one who comes and he preaches a different way than what they were accustomed to matter of fact he made himself equal with god he he told them, i am the way the truth and the life And no one comes on to the father but through me See, he was upsetting their world Actually, after Jesus rose from the dead, and after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. You don't even need a high priest anymore. You can go as your own, as a believer priest, your own self, and you can go to God. As the book of Hebrews says, we can boldly approach his throne. In that day when this was going on and Pilate was there, the system was still in place to have to go through the priestly order and the high priest and all of that. And this was at Passover, the Passover time, when lambs would be offered up, their blood would be shed. All a picture of the one who would come and put an end to all the sacrifices, whose own blood would be shed. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus was upsetting that, wasn't he? They really wanted things to continue as they had, because there was a lot of money in it. At Passover, there was a lot of money at it. See, a lot of people came from all over the Jewish world. They would come to Jerusalem. And you know, to lighten the load of the journey, they wouldn't take a lamb with them. I mean, after all, that thing's heavy. You try to carry a lamb around with you, right? And and they would, they would come from sometimes hundreds of miles away or further, and they would come, and they would have to come to Jerusalem, and they would have to buy a lamb. So there was people there that were doing that. The book of Malachi warns about that, actually, Some 400 years before uh, the time of Christ, Malachi, as he closes off his writings, he talks about them robbing God of tithes, bringing their lame animals for sacrifice, all those things which were not to be done, and that's what it had degenerated to. And it was worse when Christ's time comes, some 400 years later. Beware that you don't find yourselves rejecting Jesus. Jesus was rejected by the priests. He was rejected by Pilate, and lastly, he was rejected by the people. And it says there, for he knew the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release to them, uh, release Barabbas to them. And when Pilate answered and said to them again, "What then do you want me to do with him who you call the King of the Jews?" And so they cried out again, crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. In some ways, some of the saddest testimony that goes on in all of scripture. The one who came to save people from their sins the one who came to heal and forgive and the one who was the, redeem- the redeemer that the Bible had prophesied about from centuries before, from millennium before, millennia before. And he stands before them and his own people reject him. The Bible also talks about that in the book of John. It says, came on his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons, or the children of God, literally. And you know, it's not receiving him as an earthly king, but receiving him as the, the king of your life. And you know what? Someday he's coming again. The Bible says in the book of Zechariah, they will look on him whom they pierced. That's a prophecy that happened before, it was written before Christ came, and it tells that someday Messiah would come, and those that reject him would look on him whom they pierced. A uh, picture of the crucifixion. They will know who he is then, but it will be too late for many in that day. Well, there's a lot more that could be said here. But I think today many people stand with Jesus having been presented before them and they reject him. Some people reject him just simply by not dealing with him. I think of Pilate. He tried to kick the can down the road, so to speak. He tried to send him to Herod. We tried to not deal with Jesus. Let's get Barabbas, uh, you know, get him crucified instead and release Jesus. He tried to kick it down the road. And if you will not deal with Jesus by just that very definition, you've rejected him already. Behold, today is the day of salvation. That's what the scripture says. It warns of that. That today, tomorrow never comes, by the way. Never will be here. Some say, well, you know, when I get old, I'll look into that, right? I had a roommate in the army that said that to me. We were... A whole year, and I've shared that before, but a whole year we lived together in a room, and we're part of the same platoon. We were in the same section on our in our scout platoon that I was in. And I remember talking to him, and, you know, he grew up in a church. He grew up in a church that, uh, from his admission, preached the gospel and taught the Bible and all those things. And I remember sitting down with him and witnessing to him, and he was a good old boy, you know, not much you could. He was just a good guy to be around, but, you know, I remember him looking at me and saying, when I get old, I'll look into that. He, he really wanted to live it up now. And I, I told him, I said, you're, you know, you've got to deal with it now while you're young. Uh, I left the military, that unit, and got stationed stateside. And nine months later, I received a letter in the mail in the middle of desert storm. And just at, about a week after that, I received a letter and saying my, my roommate had been killed in, in action and I remember those words they echoed in his mind in my mind to this day when he said when I get old I'll look into it he never made it past age 20 and uh, maybe he did get right with the Lord before he went into battle I don't know I, re- I leave that with the judge of all the earth he always does right but my heart broke I remember falling down on my knees and just weeping when I got that letter because I had as best I could presented Christ to him not perfectly <laughs> I have a lot of rough edges, and I remember but having deep conversations about those things, and he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. My friends, before we go this morning, listen. Do not hesitate. Receive Christ as your King, the Lord of your life. Turn to Him. Turn from your sin. Turn to Him. He's quick to forgive. You know what? Those that were getting ready to kill Jesus, later from the cross, He would cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you know what, I know that if Jesus hadn't even said those words, hadn't prayed those prayers, you know what, today that whole nation wouldn't even be there. But he loves Israel. He loves his people. He loves uh, the whole world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. All those things, that invitation is there. And you know what, he prayed that dying prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Later, and that early church, 3,000 of those same people groups, all right, Jews scattered from all over had come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and they marvelously are converted, and they become the first followers of Christ, the church. And they're added in there on the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after the resurrection. I I think of that. That's his grace. You might reject him, and you might have rejected him, but his grace is still out on the table today. And you know what? It's offered, and today you can come to him in salvation. As always, I say, I I will be around here after service. If you're a stranger to him and you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to sit down with you. Show you from the Bible how you can know that uh, that you're saved from your sin. How you know Christ as your Savior. And I'd certainly be willing to stay with you or pray with you as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Word of God. Thank you that you have given it to us here in the Gospel of Mark. And Lord, help us not be like that That crowd that rejected their own king. Or people in authority that maybe have rejected the king. People who should know better. Who have rejected the king. But help us to receive Christ. And Lord, I thank you that as the Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the children of God. And what a blessing that is. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.